I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. For too long, we've lived with a tax system that is a blot, a stain on the shining mantle of our democratic government. We've quietly tolerated a tax code, which we know is an outrage, one riddled through with special privileges and inequities that violates our most fundamental American values of justice and fair play. Our tax system could only be described as un-American. Well, there are two things we can do about it. We can either declare April 15th a day of national mourning, or we can change the system. The tax system must no longer be poverty's accomplice. An American opportunity society begins with an expanding, healthy economy. I'll be sitting at that desk, taking up a pen and signing the most sweeping overhaul of tax code in our nation's history. After almost three years of commitment and hard work, one headline in the Washington Post told the whole story. The impossible became the inevitable, and the dream of America's fair share tax plan became a reality. On this episode of Newt's World, I want to talk about President Ronald Reagan and the 40th anniversary of the signing of the three-year tax cut, which was a revolution in American fiscal policy. But I also want to put into context two very different things. One is how a big new idea emerges and how it becomes public policy, because I think we have so many parts of our government today that have to be profoundly rethought. And I think that the rise of supply-side economics and the Reagan three-year tax cut is a great case study in being able to get something done that really does shift the direction of the country. The second is that the Reagan tax cuts came at a moment in time 
when Jimmy Carter had so screwed everything up that you had massive inflation, massive unemployment. They had what they called the misery index, which was adding together the unemployment numbers and the inflation numbers. And Carter ultimately, I think, peaked at something like 21 or 22 when you added the two together. Reagan, in response to it, had developed as a campaign theme, when your neighbor's unemployed, it's a recession. When you're unemployed, it's a depression. And when Jimmy Carter's unemployed, it's a recovery. And he just hammered Carter, leading to the largest electoral college victory against an incumbent president in modern times, because the country ultimately concluded that both in foreign policy, where we had the Iranian hostage crisis that went on for over a year, and in domestic policy, where everything seemed to be falling apart. You had gasoline lines, you had shortages of all sorts of things. You had a famous Jimmy Carter speech, which was dubbed the Malaise speech after some Harvard professor who'd written a book about America in Malaise. But actually, Carter never uses the word Malaise. He just looked like Malaise. If you go back and read it, the speech is sort of pathetic. I mean, here's a president of the United States saying, you know, things are really hard, and we may have to get by on less, and we really can't solve any of these problems. And Reagan came along and said, of course, you can solve all these problems. All you need is leadership who have the right principles. So I think it's important to go back and look at how this happened. And I'm going to try to cover in this podcast two different stories. The story of the rise of a policy that was very radical when it began and then became almost the dominant explanation of the economy. And second, the story of actually getting it passed and the hard work that involved and what it meant to the American political system. So let's start in the mid-70s. In the mid-1970s, the dominant economic model, which grew out of John Maynard Keynes, basically said you can only have a certain level of unemployment, and if you try to get more than that, you're going to cause inflation. And so you're really trapped into a weak economy. And the people who professed this believed it, and they thought that it was basically a zero-sum game And they believed in what was called demand-side economics. And this is where you get the great debate over supply versus demand. The demand-side economists, growing out of Keynes's great works, basically said, look, in order to get the economy growing again, you've got to prop up demand. People have to go out and they have to buy things. The supply-siders said that's exactly the opposite. What you have to do is create the incentives so that people will build new factories, create new products, and then you will mop up the inflation by production. And so you can have a system where you have high employment levels and low inflation because the high employment levels are actually producing goods and services that mop up the money. Now, if you think about it for a minute, where Biden has got us, which is about 50 times worse than Carter. Literally, I mean, if you you look at the scale of the Carter deficits and you look at the Carter program and then you look at Biden's, it is staggeringly dumber and staggeringly more destructive. I mean, you had three and a half trillion dollars in one bill to an economy that's already overheated. 
and you're just begging for very high levels of inflation, which they may actually want, because if you get a high enough level of inflation, you get rid of the national debt because the dollar becomes useless. As somebody once said in the Carter years, they dreamed that they'd become a millionaire, but a Big Mac cost a million dollars, so it's been sort of a break-even experience. Well, that's the danger we have right now. And of course, you've already had a significant shift towards higher prices, greater scarcity, and more inflation in only the first six or seven months of the Biden administration. So in the mid-1970s, a group came along which combined Nobel Prize winners and popularizers, Jude Winiski, who was not an economist, but who was the chief economic writer for the Wall Street Journal, and who used the Wall Street Journal as the base of his communicating supply-side economics. You had Robert Mundell at Columbia, who was a Nobel Prize-winning economist, and everybody agreed that he was brilliant and that you had to pay serious attention to him. And you had people who were popularizers. The most famous of them was an economist who had a very solid track record as an economist, but who really became famous as a popularizer, and that was Art Laffer. And the reason Laffer became so famous is that one night he was at dinner, and he said, let me explain how the system works. And he drew a curve, and it's just a very simple curve. And he said, look, the higher the tax rate, the less revenue you're going to get. The lower the tax rate, the more revenue you're going to get. And the reason is, when you get to a high tax rate, people avoid it. So, for example, when taxes were at 90%, there was a huge industry of tax shelters where people would come along and say, you know, if you invest in oil wells or you invest in paintings or whatever, we can basically take them off your income so you'll pay much lower taxes. So you created an incentive to hide from the tax system because it was so high. One of the examples that Laffer used was literally true. There were two bridges, one of them in the Philadelphia Camden area. One of them charged 50 cents and the other charged 10 cents. Guess which bridge had the most traffic? Obviously the 10 cent bridge. And guess which bridge raised the most money? The 10 cent bridge, because people would avoid the 50 cent bridge. And his point was, people are very sensitive. Jack Kemp, who was a congressman, former football quarterback and guy who really thought about popular ideas and how to communicate them to everyday people. But people would say, well, how quickly will this change? And Kemp's answer was, drop $5 on a sidewalk and see how long it takes somebody to pick it up. He said, because if you change this and you move towards a supply-side incentive-driven system, people are going to change their behavior almost immediately because they're going to realize, I'm going to get to keep more of my own money. I have a huge incentive to go out and be productive and work. And so I came along at about this point. I ran for Congress in 74 and lost. And at that point, we were still into demand-side economics, and the real breakthrough hadn't occurred. And in 1976, I ran for the second time. I went to Savannah, Georgia, to the Republican State Convention, and the keynote speaker was Jack Kemp. And his explanation of supply-side economics was so compelling, so real, that I became a convert. I became his acolyte. And he and I sat down and talked that day, and I began designing my whole campaign around supply-side economics and the concept that what if we could do dramatically better? Now, this was 
with Gerald Ford as president, and while things weren't as good as they could be, they were not yet a disaster. What happened was Ford had left office with inflation at about 5.78%. Jimmy Carter came in, followed the standard liberal demand-side model, and because unemployment had reached 7.4%. So Carter decided that we would spend our way out of it. Does this sound at all familiar? Does this remind you of Biden's recent idiotic comment that higher spending will actually be anti-inflationary, a comment that only a loon could have made? Just crazy. Uh, But it's actually what virtually every left-wing economist believes, except for Larry Summers, former Democratic Secretary of the Treasury, and a Harvard PhD, former president of Harvard, who has been publicly saying they are just going to get an amazing level of inflation out of this spending program. But all the traditional classic liberals are very big on creating a demand side. We're going to give all of you money. As the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Bernanke, once said, if necessary, he would take helicopters and drop cash from the helicopters. A perfect example of demand side thinking. If I give all of you enough cash, somehow the economy will work. No, if I give all of you enough cash, you're going to ruin the dollar. You're going to have massive inflation and the economy is still not going to work because that's not the problem. The problem is, how do I incentivize people to invest and to go to work? And if I can't get you to go to work and I can't get you to invest, nothing I do is going to matter and we're just going to increase the inflation rate. So by 78, as I ran for the third time, we actually produced an entire four-page newspaper, which was applying supply side. We showed how it would apply to you. If you had a three-year tax cut, here's what would happen at the grocery store. If you had a three-year tax cut, here's what would happen for small businesses. If you had a three-year tax cut, here's what would happen to building factories in your town. And so it was all designed around this concept. Now, the fascinating thing historically, and part of the reason I wanted to share my personal memory of the 40th anniversary of the Reagan tax cuts, is Reagan was not yet a supply sider. In 1978, Reagan was still just part of the general economics. He instinctively knew the taxes should be lower. And that's because he saw in World War II that at a 92% top rate, he had friends who would make one movie, get into that bracket and quit. They wouldn't make any more movies that year because they saw no reason to work for the federal government while they got to keep 8% of what they were earning. So Reagan knew that high taxes were very destructive. And he had an instinctive feel. He also knew that John F. Kennedy's tax cuts were actually effective and had helped launch the economy and economic growth. Kennedy was the one who actually began bringing the tax rates down, not Reagan. And ironically, the Republicans, because they were still traditional economists, mostly opposed the Kennedy tax cuts. So you had this weird moment where you had a Democrat president fighting for a tax cut against a Republican group who were opposed to the tax cut, which is, I think, an example that the Republican Party on occasion really is a stupid party and does things you can't explain by any reasonable basis. A concept which, by the way, might apply to the senators who are helping pass the infrastructure bill. Um, So in that context, you end up with Reagan kind of intrigued with tax cuts not yet bought into supply side. Laffer hadn't convinced him. Mundell hadn't convinced him. And I actually talked to Kemp in 79. I was now a freshman congressman, and I was sort of Kemp's sidekick. And 
we're wandering around propagandizing for supply-side economics and tax cuts. Jack, with enormous help from then-Republican National Committee Chairman Bill Brock, Jack had led a tax cut clipper, an airplane that Brock had paid for at the Republican National Committee, which went around the country with Senator Bill Roth and Congressman Jack Kemp, who were the two co-sponsors of the Kemp-Roth tax cuts. So they went wandering around the country and, and during the 78 campaign. I was busy campaigning on the Kemp-Roth tax cuts during the 78 campaign. And in the summer of 79, Kemp said to me, I'm going to go out to California. Reagan's invited me to the ranch. We're going to have lunch. And I'm going to tell him if he will adopt the Kemp-Roth tax cuts, I'll chair his campaign. And if he won't adopt the Kemp-Roth tax cuts, I'm going to run for president because I think we should have a pro-tax cut candidate. So he came back a couple of days later with a huge smile, and Reagan had said yes. And he told a great anecdote. He said, at one point, somebody came in and said that the former governor of Texas who was running was the choice of the Wall Street big businesses, and Reagan was the choice of small businesses, and Reagan broke into this huge smile and just thought, Wall Street versus Main Street. He said, I think we can live with that choice. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. 
I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. Reagan then began campaigning on a three-year tax cut. Now, it's important to remember, this was a very radical idea. This was as radical as our proposal in the 90s to balance the federal budget or to reform welfare. And so you had, for example, George H.W. Bush, who was running for president, called it voodoo economics, which, of course, once he got nominated to be vice president, he actually didn't quite mean it. It was good voodoo economics by then. But it just gives you a flavor that this was not an automatic slam dunk idea. The establishment was appalled. Barbara Conable was the ranking Republican on the Ways and Means Committee. He was Jack Kemp's next-door neighbor in upstate New York, and he hated Kemp because Kemp, who was on appropriations, was running around the country talking about tax policy, and Conable knew that Kemp didn't know anything about tax policy. And Conable was supposed to know about tax policy, and Conable was a very traditional establishment guy, and he thought this supply-side stuff was crazy. So you had real splints over this. Reagan gets the nomination, and the fall campaign basically is Carter's stagflation, and stagflation was a term that was invented during that period to describe very high inflation with very high unemployment simultaneously. And Carter had a real crisis because he'd appointed Paul Volcker chairman of the Federal Reserve. And inflation ultimately is a monetary problem. It's a question about how much money is available. If there's no new money, you don't get inflation. If there's a huge amount of new money, you get inflation. So the Federal Reserve has a tremendous capacity to cut off inflation if it wants to. The problem is the technique for cutting off inflation is really high interest rates. And really high interest rates kill jobs. So Volcker was under enormous pressure. By this time, I was a sophomore member in early in the Reagan years. He was under enormous pressure from every central bank in the world because the American inflation was beginning to infect all of the value of currency worldwide. And so they all wanted him to get the inflation under control. And he came back and said to Reagan, I can break the back of inflation, but it's going to take a very painful, huge increase in interest rates. And that's going to put tremendous pressure on the market. Well, Reagan had just run against a guy who had totally mismanaged the economy. It would be a lot like having to follow Joe Biden, except I think the Biden problems will be 10 to 20 times worse than Carter. But nonetheless, Reagan had inherited a really bad economy. And in parallel to Reagan, this is one of those great ironic moments in history. In 1979, Margaret Thatcher won an election as prime minister of Great Britain, the first woman to become prime minister. She was an extraordinarily hardline conservative. She one time was asked at the conservative party conference what their policies were, and she reached into her purse, and she pulled out a copy of Hayek's Constitution of Freedom, and she slammed it on the desk. <laughs> and she said, this is our policy. We are for freedom and we are against socialism. So Thatcher was following, very parallel and slightly ahead of Reagan, a policy of very tough anti-inflation, 
cut taxes and regulations, encourage entrepreneurship, deliberately endure the pain, and say to people up front, this is going to be hard, but we're going to get through it. And when we get through it, we're going to be wealthier, more successful, more competitive, and you and your children will have a better future. Reagan really liked Margaret Thatcher. In some ways, he was her sidekick or she was his sidekick in trying to shift from the liberal demand side, high inflation, high deficit, big government spending model towards a supply side, cut taxes, encourage entrepreneurs, maximize the rate of investment, and create jobs. Well, that was going to be a very tough transition. And the only way it would work would be if there was a huge tax cut, because the tax cut would enable people to offset the pain that the Federal Reserve would be deliberately causing. Remember, the Federal Reserve at this point is desperate to get inflation under control, and they're about to cause a lot of pain. So Reagan had an enormous interest in getting the three-year tax cut passed. Now, he didn't have control of the House. He had picked up a lot of seats, but he had not gotten to a majority. He did have, and a great shock to everybody, control of the Senate, which nobody expected. But we picked up something like five Senate seats by a total margin of 75,000 votes. And it just was one of those moments when, by the narrowest of margins, we were in charge. Now, again, that didn't make it easy because... The head of the Senate Finance Committee, Packwood of Oregon, thought that the Reagan program was crazy. And Howard Baker, the Republican leader in the Senate, said at one point on the record that this is a riverboat gamble. We have no idea if this is going to work, which is hardly the kind of battle cry you want out of your Senate majority leader trying to pass something. But Reagan did have the largest electoral victory over an incumbent president in modern American history. Because he had brought in the Senate as a majority, and because he'd picked up a whole lot of House seats, he was seen as somebody who legitimately had popular support for his initial program. And so he was able to focus. Now, he was also helped by having picked Jim Baker to be his chief of staff. Baker is one of the remarkable figures in American history, born to a very, very wealthy Texas family. He records that his earliest memory was waking up at about three on his grandfather's private train going across Texas. He became the name partner in the Baker Law Firm. He ran for office without great success, but he was an extraordinary manager and an extraordinary strategist. And when Reagan brought him in, he brought in the missing piece of enormous entrepreneurial drive inside the White House. Reagan was a great visionary, but he also understood that he couldn't both be the visionary and the manager. And so he found somebody who became his partner in changing American history at almost every level. So Baker set out a firm rule, and this is a great example of how you pass legislation. They got all the cabinet together in a room, and Baker said, the president will accept no invitations for the next six months unless they relate to cutting taxes. So if you want the president to do something, figure out some event where he's going to talk about tax cuts, because otherwise he ain't coming, period. And by the way, your job as a cabinet secretary is to talk about tax cuts and to deliver votes on the tax cuts. So 
This was a true full-court press. As a junior member of the Reagan team, I was privileged on a number of occasions to go down to the White House with my colleagues. And there was a real sense that we were on a mission, that this was a crusade, and that we were going to change America to a more productive, more dynamic, more entrepreneurial country. And that getting this passed was a really, really big historic deal. Now, in the House, we didn't have a majority. Bob Michael, who was the most effective minority leader in modern times, was maneuvering. And Tip O'Neill, unlike Nancy Pelosi, was playing by the rules. And so O'Neill recognized that under the rules, he was going to lose enough Democrats because back then they still had Democrats who were relatively conservative. And if you were a Texas or a Georgia or an Alabama Democrat, you wanted to vote with Ronald Reagan because he was wildly popular in your district. So when you combine the Republicans and the Reagan Democrats, we had enough votes to pass the tax cut with modification. And the modification, which was unfortunate, was that the first year was modified and didn't come in full force. And so the second and third years did. But that slowed down the impact of the tax cuts and I think hurt us in the 82 recession. But it was the cost of getting the bill through. So Reagan campaigned brilliantly. All of this, of course, remember, was interrupted when Reagan was shot, which was just an enormous, extraordinary shock to the country. And Reagan, who insisted on walking into the hospital and who said to the doctors, I hope you're Republicans, <laughs> recovered very rapidly. And one of the most emotional public moments of my life was the day that Reagan came into the Congress to deliver a joint session address, which was about 45 days after he'd been shot. And it was just astonishing. I mean, the level of emotion, it was electric. Well, this is the guy, and of course, guess what he's talking about? He's talking about why we have to pass the tax cuts. So he had enormous emotional force going with him, and the tax cut got passed. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. 
Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Now, there's a great side story about how the tax cut gets signed. Reagan had announced to his staff early in his presidency that every August he would be at the ranch. And Mike Deaver, who was in charge of the schedule and was very close to Nancy and was also had been his communications director as a governor and candidate, Deaver said, you know, you can't leave for an entire month. And Reagan said, well, you know, you better figure out what you're going to have me do at the ranch because I'm going to the ranch. Because if I go to the ranch one month out of every year for the next eight years, I will live longer. And if I don't, I won't live longer. So this is a matter of life and death. I'll be at the ranch. You figure out what we can do at the ranch that makes news. So Reagan's up at the Reagan Ranch. They set up this table outside. It's very rustic. And Reagan is there and gives a little talk and signs the tax cuts. And it is an extraordinary moment because Reagan had fundamentally changed the underlying economic nature of how America was going to operate. He had moved us from a demand side, which didn't increase manufacturing, didn't increase investments, didn't increase productivity, to a supply side, which said, if we do all those things, if we have more factories, if we have more productivity, if we have more production, then prices will go down. By the way, something which was proven with gasoline and oil, I actually did a book called Gasoline $2.50, which Barack Obama attacked because it violated the liberal model that gasoline had to permanently go up. And the fact is that you have a demand-side, supply-side fight over oil and gas. And it turns out that if you emphasize the supply side, the sheer production crashes the price. So if you want inexpensive gasoline, maximize production. If you focus on demand and you try to get the maximum of people buying gasoline, you guarantee that prices are going to go up. So we were in a situation in August of 1981 where Reagan is shifting the country. And what he's doing is he's saying, one, I am going to totally support Paul Volcker. And I was frankly on the other side because I knew this was going to cost us seats, which it did. It cost us 29 seats in the House 
1982 because we were in a deep recession, thanks to Paul Volcker. But Reagan's point was very much like Thatcher. You have to break the back of inflation, period. Well, inflation, when he took office, was 13.5%. When he left office eight years later, it was 4.82%, and it kept, by the way, going down. So you had a growing economy with a declining inflation rate. People had more real money in their pockets. Their purchasing power was going up. And Reagan was prepared to take the pain as a matter of policy and support Volcker in this very tough program. At the same time, because he had deregulation in a big way and cut the federal bureaucracy and dramatically reduced the amount of burden that small businesses and manufacturers had to carry, you began to get a program where people thought America was the right place to invest again. So you had a growing economy despite the high interest rates. And by 1984, it was going well enough that Reagan could campaign on the slogan, Morning in America. Now, the gap between the malaise of Jimmy Carter and four years later, Morning in America with Ronald Reagan, was in many ways a function of supply-side economics and the impact of the Reagan tax cut. It was a remarkable achievement. It was both an economic revolution and an intellectual revolution and a political revolution. The tax cuts included an accelerated cost recovery system, which accelerated the depreciation tax reductions. And what that meant was you bought a new piece of equipment, you could write it off faster so you could buy another new piece because the equipment was changing technology every couple years. It indexed the individual tax brackets with a 23% cut in individual tax rates. So you're out here working hard. All of a sudden, you got much more money in your pocket, which incentivizes you to save, to invest, to be involved. The top tax rate was cut from 70 to 50 over a three-year period. Well, again, remember that the federal tax also has a state tax on top of it. So if you're in a state that is a high tax bracket, New York, California being good examples, Connecticut, Illinois, and you start at 70% and then you add the state taxes, it really gets to be expensive. So the lowest tax rate was cut from 14 to 11. The real estate tax exemption was increased to $600,000 from 175 to promote capital cost recovery. In other words, they wanted people to be able to sell a house or sell a factory or sell a building and keep most of it. So you begin to create modernization. You begin to create an incentive to go out and look for new, better, more modern. Every working taxpayer was allowed to establish individual retirement accounts. And if there was a step to increase savings. And if you look today, the actual assets in individual retirement accounts totaled $12.6 trillion at the end of the first quarter of 2021. Now think about that. $12 trillion, $600 billion that people have that belongs to them. It's astonishing over a generation how many people has an IRA. And it's astonishing how much money that has been saved and put back into the system in order to accelerate economic growth because people had a real incentive. There was a 10% exclusion on income for two earner married couples up to $3,000 of exclusion. That was put in to offset the fact that we actually were charging you more if you were married 
than if you were two single people. There was a taxation on windfall profits, and that was reduced. There was a reduction in the capital gains tax from 28 to 20. And I'm very proud of the fact that the House Republicans, when I was Speaker, passed the largest capital gains cut in American history. When you cut capital gains tax, you dramatically increase investment, you increase economic growth, you modernize the economy, you make it easier for us to compete with China. It's a very important thing that most people don't fully appreciate. But capital gains, as was once said years and years ago by Alan Greenspan, then the chairman of the Federal Reserve, the ideal rate would be zero because it creates so much economic growth. It took until 1983 for the economy to turn around because of the Volcker enormous increase in the interest rates. But starting in 1983, the economy began to roll. And in many ways, up until the Bush collapse in 2008, we actually had a long stretch of economic growth and of a very healthy economy as a function of Reagan policies and of those of us who fought consistently against it. So I think that it's very useful today as we listen and think about the anniversary of the Reagan tax cuts to realize that it was important intellectually, it was important economically, it was important politically, and as we prepare to try to help the country move out of the mess that Joe Biden's going to leave it in, I think that Reagan and the Reagan economic policy kill inflation, enable people to invest, cut taxes, cut red tape, encourage small business. All those steps are going to be as relevant as we begin to recover from the disaster that the Democrats are about to impose on us. And it's a little bit like being able to sit back there at the beginning of the Carter years and say, yes, Carter will make a total mess, but by the way, Ronald Reagan will come along and fix it. I think he can say right now, if we apply the principles that Reagan taught us, we can come out of this very fast, starting in 2025. And if Kevin McCarthy ends up as Speaker and we have control of the House in 2023, we can begin the process of laying the groundwork so we can hit the ground running once we take the White House. But I have no doubt, having lived through it, if you look at the principles Biden is applying, this is Jimmy Carter times 20 or 30, and it's going to be a mess. And having watched what happened with Carter, I am confident the American people have the good common sense to realize that high inflation, high unemployment, massive debt, huge bureaucratic regulations is not a very good road to go down and is not a very good way of life. And therefore, I think that looking at Reagan and the 40th anniversary of the tax cuts and looking at all of the terrific material that the Reagan Library is producing. And if you'd like to know a lot more, you can go to the Reagan Library. We have a connection on our show page. They have done an amazingly good job. And you should make sure that their material, explaining supply-side economics, explaining the tax cuts, explaining the economy, their material should be in every school in the country. And you have an opportunity to have an impact by trying to get the Reagan Library material into the schools in your community. So I hope you find this useful. I'm an optimist, as Reagan was. He always said, you ain't seen nothing yet. He was right. You ain't seen nothing yet. It's all going to be more exciting and more dynamic 
and our children and grandchildren are going to live in an even better America with even greater opportunities. And the world will, in the end, reject tyranny in favor of freedom. And so I think Reagan's a pretty useful benchmark for what could be and what we have to work hard to make real again. Thank you for listening. You can learn more about the 40th anniversary of President Reagan's tax cuts on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners to Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.